0: I think a lot of it has to do with education. You know, let people know genetic testing is available. Here's how it can help you. And then let them make the choice. There is a lot of genetic research happening. If something comes up and you happen to have a gene and there does happen to be a therapy, you want to know about that.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. In recent weeks, lawmakers in Maryland have been debating a bill that would prohibit life insurance and disability insurance companies from using the results of genetic testing to deny coverage or affect pricing decision. Now, to learn more about the fight to pass the Genetic Testing Protection Act in Maryland and in other states, check out our recent conversation here on Connecting ALS with Melanie Lennall and Lindsey Gill from the ALS Association's public policy team, or you can check out the links in this episode's show notes. Genetic counseling and testing is an increasingly important part of healthcare. It can help diagnose the underlying causes of a disease or point the way toward clinical trials and potential treatments down the road. The decision to pursue genetic testing is a personal one and genetic counselors can help you navigate all the considerations and make an informed decision whether genetic testing is right for you. But it is important that people with ALS and their family members do not face barriers to accessing genetic testing and counseling. As many listeners are aware, ALS can be linked to a genetic mutation, an error in our DNA instructions that can cause our cells to create too much protein, not enough protein, or a toxic protein. These gene mutations can be inherited from our parents or developed during our lifetimes, perhaps randomly, or perhaps due to some kind of environmental exposure. The scientists first discovered a gene mutation connected to ALS in 1993. That was a mutation in the SOD1 gene. Since then, researchers have uncovered more than 40 genetic mutations that have been linked to ALS, including a mutation in the C9 ORF gene, the most common genetic mutation that has been tied to ALS. Because ALS can have a genetic component, that means it can be inherited. Listeners are probably well familiar with this data point, but somewhere between five and 10% of people living with ALS have family members who have also been affected by the disease. This is often referred to as family ALS. I recently talked to Larry Falavina, who was diagnosed with ALS in 2017 and who serves on the ALS Association Board of Trustees about his decision to pursue genetic testing and his experience living with a familial form of ALS. Larry, thanks as always for being with us on Connecting ALS.
0: Happy to be here.
1: We've been talking about genetics and familial ALS recently. Uh, As I'm sure you're aware, the big legislative fight happening up in Maryland. Uh, We'll get to that in a little bit. And, you know, obviously the association has put together some resources for people to understand the the, the benefits and the considerations around genetic counseling and testing. So I kind of want to start there. What was your experience after your diagnosis kind of making a determination whether you wanted to pursue genetic testing and genetic counseling.
0: Yeah. I was actually informed about it. You know, it wasn't something that I'd ever talked about, but very soon after my diagnosis, um, Dr. Bedlack at the Duke clinic said, you should think about genetic testing because there is a lot of genetic research happening. If something comes up and you happen to have a gene and there does happen to be a therapy. You want to know about that and that makes sense to me, right? Let's, let's find out there's so much that we don't know about ALS. If we can find out something that's only going to be helpful. and sure enough, you know, not long after a treatment came up for the genetic mutation I had and that gave me the opportunity to get to a trial. So I think a lot of it has to do with education. You know, let people know genetic testing is available. Here's how it can help you. And then let them make the choice.
1: You mentioned uh, clinical trials, and I know that's one of the big reasons that we talk about genetic testing, genetic counseling. Uh, What's your experience been like in in the clinical trial that you've been in?
0: You know, it's interesting. You're you're diagnosed with this terminal disease. There really aren't any treatments. So the first thing that you start thinking about is, let me get into a trial. Because really, experimental treatments are one of the few options available to you. And it's kind of a daunting process. You know, you have to put in the work, I guess you'd say, to to find out what's out there, what might be a fit for you, and then try to get in. And I was actually disqualified the first time I applied for this trial. So, you know, finding a trial and then finding out you don't get in, you know, that's just another kind of slap in the face there on top of everything else. Long story short, I did wind up getting in. I'm now a part of the Open Label Extension which has been a tremendous blessing. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. I think my experience and, and the data seems to show that there's a benefit. So, you know, every four weeks I have to travel two states away. You know, I have to get a treatment. My wife has to go with me. Friends have to cover the kids. I'm not complaining. You know, again, I feel very blessed. But, you know, there is a cost to it.
1: Yeah, we had the opportunity to talk to uh, Dr. Merit Chikovic a couple weeks ago on the show about efforts to expand access to clinical trials and try to reduce some of those burdens, make it easier for more people to participate in more trials. So, I mentioned at the top this legislation going on in Maryland and we talked about it a couple weeks ago with the public policy team basically taking life insurance, long-term care providers and making sure that they can't utilize something that we learn through genetic testing to deny somebody long-term care or life insurance or to engage in some type of pricing discrimination. So really kind of protecting patients, what they learn through genetic testing and protecting the privacy of that information. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of making sure that people have access to genetic counseling and testing and the need to prevent discrimination based on the results of those tests.
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, genetic testing is important for many diseases, not just ALS. I mean, certain types of cancer, cystic fibrosis, et cetera. So research continues to find genetic markers for all kinds of different diseases. And if we ever want to get to the point where we can detect these things early, apply treatments early, if we ever want to get to the point where we're actually going to prevent these diseases genetic counseling and testing has to be an option you know and i realize you know it comes down to money but i think even for the insurers if we get to the point where certainly we can prevent a disease or even just treat it earlier that brings costs down because now you don't have lengthy treatments for diseases if we can prevent death you know it could be a win-win situation but to you know take that option away from people because they are afraid that they might lose life insurance or not get health insurance and not be able to take advantage of something that could save their life. Just not fair.
1: We had an opportunity to talk on this show to a genetic counselor last year and one of the things that really was brought home to me in that part conversation is is the genetic counseling component of it like the genetic testing is important if you decide to pursue that but the genetic counseling component can kind of talk someone through the benefits and then the kind of considerations that have to go into making that ultimate decision
0: yeah i i, I agree uh, but i would also like to expand into the definition of genetic counseling mm. <laughs> okay because Naively on my part, right? Genetic counseling, I think also needs to include the psychiatric side of things. Like I said, it's, it's been a struggle for me and my wife, right? How do we deal with it? So again, when I first started genetic counseling, I kind of pictured that, you know, like family counseling, psychiatric counseling, I would really like to see that part of the process because. You know, just dropping that in someone's lap, just like an ALS diagnosis. Hey, you have ALS, you know? Yeah. And then that's it. Right. Yeah. Have, having someone help you navigate that, especially with familial ALS, would be tremendously helpful.
1: Now, Larry, I'm sure many listeners are aware of the genetic connections to ALS, the the genes uh, and the the gene mutations that are connected to the disease. What have you learned since your diagnosis about familial ALS?
0: With my particular genetic mutation, there's no history of it in in my family, as I said before. Um, But I do know several people who've had to deal with familial ALS and have lost numerous members of their family across generations and and what's really struck me is how devastating this is on a family uh just the other day excuse me just the other day a friend of mine um who has ALS familial ALS texted me to say that her brother was just diagnosed and on the one hand he kind of knew it was coming but that it's still a you know crushing diagnosis and what we kind of talked about is You know als is kind of like having this giant boulder hanging over your head and you never know when or if it's just going to drop down and, and crush you i can't imagine you know trying to deal with that on a daily basis but that's the life of someone with a familial als and that's why finding these treatments hopefully finding preventions for this genetic side of als can make a huge difference to families who've already seen so much loss.
1: And that's an important point and one that I, th- I definitely think should not get lost in the conversation. Larry, thanks as always for sharing your time and insight with us. I appreciate it, thank you. As Larry mentioned, knowledge of whether ALS is connected to a known genetic mutation can point the way toward clinical trials that are testing therapies targeting specific genetic mutations. To learn more about the development of gene therapies, I recently connected with Dr. Michael Benatar, a professor of neurology, the Walter Bradley Chair in ALS Research, Executive Director of the ALS Center, Chief of Neuromuscular Division, Vice Chair for Clinical and Translational Research in the Department of Neurology at the University of Miami. Dr. Benatar is also a member of the ALS Association's Board of Trustees. Dr. Benatar, thanks so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS.
2: You're welcome. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, really excited to talk to you a little bit about some of the research that's going on around the world and search for treatments and and cures for ALS. Um, But for starting points, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that researchers face trying to develop uh, effective treatments for ALS?
2: Yeah, it's sort of the million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, um, I think a few things. I think one is fundamentally, um, and there are exceptions, but fundamentally we don't understand... Um, the underlying causes of disease and I said causes in plural I can say more about that but I don't think this is one disease I think um, it's many diseases um, probably with many different causes and even if we don't understand the cause we don't understand what I call upstream biology so I don't mean downstream consequences of that cause but some sort of early event in sort of initiating the pathology of disease We don't have good ways to study that in people and to understand that. And so we're often slailing about a little when we're trying to develop treatments because we don't know um, fundamentally what to target. Now, of course, the genetic forms of ALS are a little bit different, and we'll talk more about those, but there we we understand the cause and we can target them. So I think that's the one sort of central challenge. But the other, and this has been sort of a lingering worry in my head for a long time, is that fundamentally as a general rule we treat too late and this is intuitive in many ways the analogy i often give patients is to say if you go to the dermatologist with um, um, a cancerous skin lesion and it's restricted to the skin you can cut it out and that'll be curative but if it's metastasized to the brain and the bones and elsewhere um, that simple surgical procedure is not going to do anything So I guess I worry that we sometimes might be bringing what could be effective therapies, but too late to bear. And so they're not having an effect. So I think those two things probably for me are some of the greatest challenges. Yeah, we've talked a bit on
1: this this program about some of the efforts that are being done for earlier diagnosis. So potentially having some earlier interventions. But I wanna go back to something else you mentioned, Dr. Benatar, and that was the genetic components of ALS. You know, over the course of time, many uh, genetic mutations have been found with a connection to ALS. So with with that in mind, what, what progress is being made in developing treatments for those genetic forms of ALS?
2: Yeah, so another important question and very timely so I think as the, the audience to this podcast probably know, we can identify a, a, a monogenic cause or a single gene as the cause of ALS in sort of 10 to 15% of people. Um, and that's not restricted to people who have a family history. I and mean, there's people with a family history and people without, but there's a clearly identified genetic cause. The specific genetic cause, and there are many, depending on how you count them, 10, 20, 30 different genes that have been identified. You know, which is most common depends to some extent on the population you're studying, but the two sort of leading candidates or most common causes of the C9-North72 repeat expansion um, and the uh, mutations in the SOD1 gene. We've known about SOD1 for the longest, since the early 90s, and really good progress has been made. Um, There's sort of been advanced stage clinical trials of sort of a, a form of a gene therapy using antisense oligonucleotides to... Um, knock down levels of the the SOD1 protein that is thought to be toxic, and actually currently that data is before the FDA for consideration for um, accelerated approval. There've been other efforts in other forms of disease, so a similar ASO-based approach has been um, looked at and is still being looked at in C9orf72. Um, there've been sort of more fits and starts, there more challenges, more setbacks. Some of that early data um, has. Not yielded the results that we would have hoped for. Maybe harmful. Uh, not seeing early promising signals, and maybe that reflects um, the more complex biology of C nine disease compared to um, SOD, and we need to understand that better, even when we think we we, we know the cause of disease. Um, but there are other genetic approaches or gene therapy approaches that I think are coming down the pike. But I think. Um, Being able to target that upstream cause um, of disease is really enabling us to to make progress, and I guess I'm cautiously hopeful, optimistic that the first meaningful therapies are going to come to patients with some of these genetic forms of disease. You talked about the, the percentages, 10 to 15%, I think you said,
1: we can trace back to some type of genetic cause or genetic signal. So as we learn about ways to treat those gene- those underlying genetic causes uh, potentially, um, so how can learnings from ways to treat genetic causes of ALS, how does that shine a light on other potential treatments for maybe non-genetic or uh, sporadic cases of ALS?
2: Yeah, so I think that's another really important question, and I think there are a few ways to to answer that. The first is, again, as this audience knows, we currently lack meaningfully effective therapies. If we can get one for any form of disease, I see that as a foot in the door, the thin edge of the wedge, so to speak, that we can use to pry that door open, because I think there are important lessons. And you're asking what some of those lessons are. So first, I think one of the things we, we might learn is that if you can target the cause of disease, maybe you can have the biggest impact. So that'll sort of further provide impetus for some of what we discussed earlier. Um, the second thing that I think we're learning is that even when you target the cause, depending on the nature of the therapy, this may not be like sort of clicking a light switch. It may take time to exert the intended biological effect. So for example, to knock down that gene or the toxic protein that results from that genetic mutation. And it may take time after you've accomplished that biological effect to see a clinically meaningful effect in a way that matters to patients, slowing disease, feeling better, living longer. And so I think there are sort of several delays in that, and that has important implications for how we design future clinical trials. So maybe... A six-month trial isn't long enough, even when you're targeting the cause of disease. Because over that time frame, you can impact the biology, but it's not enough time to see the therapeutic benefit. So I think there may be learnings there in terms of the nature of the therapeutic and when and how we try to measure therapeutic response, um, and for how long um, we need to treat. The third sort of learning, I think, relates to the importance of biomarkers, and I don't know how much you've sort of spoken about these on this um, podcast, but biomarkers um, can be many different things, and maybe we have to have a whole separate discussion about them. You know, we, we can't
1: talk about biomarkers enough. I, I think it's a critical part of this conversation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are um, two important sort of things that we should say about biomarkers relevant um, to this context, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some learnings from the SOD1 antisense oligonucleotide um, trials. So I think we learned some important things about one of our most advanced and sophisticated biomarkers, the single neurofilament light chain or NFL, not to be confused with Super Bowl NFL, but um, a different kind of NFL. Um, although Super Bowl raises your NFL too, but um, separate to that, <laughs> we're talking about neurofilament light chain here. Um, so this has sort of two potential um, utilities here. The one is we're learning that Neurofilament light, when measured in blood, it's also true in spinal fluid, but when measured in blood, is a prognostic biomarker. So what that means, when you measure it now or early, it tells you something about the future course of disease, how quickly disease, for example, is progressing, or how long or short survival may be. And one of the things we know about ALS is that it's enormously phenotypically heterogeneous. Some people progress slowly, some people progress quickly, and that's a challenge when we're trying to discern the therapeutic effect of the treatment. We have to know that that effect is due to the treatment and not just that natural variability of the disease. So having a prognostic marker like NFL that we can stratify patients on. So when we randomise, we can make sure there's a good mix of fast and slow progressors on the active treatment, fast and slow progressors on the slow treatment, or we can only give a treatment to those with a neurofilament of a particular level or at a particular range. There are various sort of nuances in how we might sort of use it, but having that as a prognostic marker can enable us to do more effective trials, meaning smaller numbers of patients measuring the therapeutic effect more quickly. Um, And so that was one very important learning. Lots of literature had built up to this, but I think an important learning um, from the recent SOD1 um, ASO trial. But the other is not using neurofilament in that prognostic sense, but as what the FDA calls a response biomarker. So a response biomarker is a marker that changes, that tells us there's been a biological response to a treatment. So what does NFL tell us? NFL is a marker of how quickly neurodegeneration is proceeding. The analogy I like to use is think about it as the sort of the dial on the speedometer tells you how fast you're traveling. Going 80 miles per hour, your disease is progressing more quickly than if you're going 40 miles per hour. The analogy there the 80 miles per hour is a higher level of neurofilament. Going more slowly is a slower level of neurofilament. And what we saw in the SOD1ASO trial was a lowering of neurofilament by about 60%. So we think intuitively that's good. If we can slow the speed with which that car is progressing, slow the pace with which disease is progressing, surely that must have a clinical benefit. We don't know that for sure, but there's a reasonable expectation that that's the case. So some of these learnings, once we have an effective therapy, will tell us how we can use biomarkers like neurofilament to help us in future trials and in future drug development efforts. So again, it's that sort of foot in the door, that thin edge of the wedge. If we can get a treatment that works, now we've got a proof of principle as to how that biomarker can be expected to respond. And we can use that to tell us, for example, when we test new treatments, do we see a change in this biomarker? Is this a promising therapy? Should we move that from a phase two trial into a phase three trial? So I think, again, it's not that this is genetic learnings to non-genetic. It's Maybe first success to future successes. And if the first success happens to come in the genetic realm, then that will be a lesson that will be relevant, hopefully, to developing therapies for all forms of ALS. As listeners are well aware, one of the hallmarks of genetic ALS is the
1: potential to pass it on, for it to be inherited. And that's why we've been talking in recent weeks a lot about genetic testing, genetic counseling. What is some of the potential for prevention of genetically caused ALS?
2: Great. So now we're talking about what I'm really interested in. Um, So we've been interested in this question for the better part of the last 15, 20 years. Um, I think this comes back to where we started, which is at some level, it feels intuitive that the earlier you can treat, the better. And if you can prevent, um, how much more so is that um, even better and more likely to, to be effective if you can get in super early. But in order to prevent, you need to know who's at risk, you need to know when they're likely to develop disease, and you need to have a window of opportunity where you can intervene. So we started studying this problem and this potential, I guess, in the genetic realm, because the genetic risk factors are the best-known risk factors for developing disease. If you have, for example, an SOD1 mutation, there's a very high lifetime risk, depending on the specific mutation, but for the most part, a very high lifetime risk that you will develop ANS at some stage. But it's very variable, the age of onset. It could be in your 20s, could be in your 70s or 80s. If you've ever seen an ORF72 mutation, the risk is high, but it's not complete. The penetrance there is incomplete. Not everyone will develop disease. So how much more so is it difficult to know in whom should we think about intervening early to prevent disease? But again, the principle is that if we know that you have a a factor that puts you at greatly elevated risk, then there's the potential um, to intervene early. So we've started in this realm. But now what are we going to use to intervene early to prevent and what's the risk of that? So if I've got a high-risk treatment, I'm going to give it to you when you're 20, but you might not develop disease until you're 70, maybe I'm going to cause more harm than good, right? And so I need to know when you're going to develop disease. Now this brings us back to our biomarker neurofilament light, and we found several years ago that in people who carry a genetic mutation that puts them at very high risk of developing aggressive forms of disease, neurofilament levels go up six to 12 months before people ever show clinical signs of disease. So maybe that can tell us the when, right? Could we use that if we're monitoring that in blood, not spinal fluid in blood, to tell us in who we should give a gene therapy super early. And in fact, we're now doing that in the ATLAS trial, a study that I designed together with colleagues at Biogen, and which is now um, ongoing. But maybe there are opportunities to go beyond that as we discover more biomarkers of pre disease to give us opportunities to intervene in other genetic populations and maybe even in other non-genetic populations. Because if we want to get into prevention outside of the genetic realm of disease, we've got to identify those risk factors. We've got to know who's at risk, when are they at risk, and how can we intervene upon that. And we can talk more about that um, if we'd like to go there.
1: Yeah, I would. I, I wanted to go back to your kind of wedge in the door, uh, foot in the door, the the what was it? The, the thin edge of the wedge in the door. Um, it, it, does that apply here to prevention as well, that as we learn preventative efforts for genetic forms of ALS, it, it kind of shines a light toward how we can a- apply that to non-genetic forms or sporadic ALS?
2: I think it absolutely does. So let me give you another example of a learning from the genetic population that I think will be at risk for the non-genetic. So the first was the example I already cited that neurofilament levels seem to go up pre-symptomatically, so that's non-specific. There are other things that can do that, like head injury, uh, but that may be one sort of early marker. But one of the other important things we've learned from studying people at genetic risk for ALS is for the most part, people don't flip over from being what we call clinically silent to having ALS. In between those two stages, there's a prodromal period that we have called mild motor impairment or MMI. We think in some people, where there's a close relationship between ALS and FTD, some people may have mild cognitive impairment, some have mild behavioral impairment. So these prodromal syndromes could be MMI, MCI, or MBI. Now, I don't know this, this is a hypothesis, but I strongly, strongly suspect that even people without genetic risk for disease, or people with other risk factors, also go through these prodromal states. So if we could recognize these and study these, maybe that's the foot in the door, that thin edge of the wedge, to begin to think about studying early disease in people with sporadic forms of ALS maybe studying prodromal disease will lead to earlier diagnosis, earlier therapeutic intervention, maybe one day even prevention. But it's not just people with these prodromal syndromes. I think there are other categories of people or other risk factors. These are with challenges, but we're beginning to get a sense of this. Veterans have twice the risk. Family members of people with non-genetic ALS have eight times the risk. People with some environmental exposures have elevated risks in the perhaps, you know, one and a half to two to threefold increases. People with family history of other neurodegenerative diseases, FDA, um, not FDA, FTD, other neuropsychiatric diseases, family members of these sorts of people also may have an elevated risk. Now, the challenge is that their risk is still relatively low. So that's still a challenge. But I think studying those people who are at elevated risk, trying to identify other factors, maybe putting some of these together identifies people at even greater risk. And I think that's the opportunity and one of the sort of pressing needs for what we need to be doing in the coming years. You talked about challenges and opportunities. Before I let you go,
1: Dr. Benatar, uh, what gives you hope that we're on the right path and that that progress could be on the not-too-distant horizon?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... There's always a challenge right we we want to be a need to be hopeful and optimistic but i'm also always very cautious not to give false hope and false optimism so i'm sure i'm concerned that we don't have meaningful therapies on the immediate horizon for people with non-genetic forms of disease but i do think we have made very meaningful strides in developing approaches to developing therapies that are going to be more efficient and more effective I think we're developing better tools. I think we're beginning to get that foot in the door. And I think we're increasingly as a field, I think, asking the right questions and focusing our efforts in the places where they need to be, coming back to where we started. Really understanding the biology of disease, the upstream causes of disease, and thinking about how do we intervene early. So. You know, we have no hope when we're asking the wrong questions. When we're asking the right questions and focusing our efforts where I think we're beginning to get traction, I think is a, is a real um, reason for hope and optimism, um, hopefully in the not too distant future for
1: meaningful therapies. Well, with that, we will let you get back to the important work of understanding those upstream causes and uh, looking for treatments and cures. Dr. Benatar, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, great to be with you. I wanna thank my guests this week, Larry Falavina and Dr. Michael Benatar. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. And while you're at it, please rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post production by Alex Brower, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.